Hello, thanks for tuning in. You're listening to the Stress Sessions with me, Luke. Can I get a whoop whoop? Thanks. What's the reason for that, you're wondering? Well, today marks a week until we can all go and sit in the cold, in the rain, in the lovely English spring weather, in somebody else's garden. I'm joking. I'm actually buzzing that we can go and see other people again. And it's going to be great just to get out of the house and not be limited to going down Lidl while wearing a mask as your weekly hour of fun. Right, this week's guest. The person who I'm speaking to was appointed to his first role as a football manager of the MK Dons in May 2010, which made him the youngest manager ever in English football. Now manager of Oxford United and having also managed Charlton, I'm speaking to Carl Robinson, who will forever be in the hearts of all football fans in Milton Keynes. So sit back, relax and listen to myself and Carl speak about things including dealing with criticism in his role having a permanent hiatus from social media, taking advice from Sam Allardyce and how he treats both the physical and mental health of his players equally. A massive thanks to Carl's wife, Anne-Marie, for setting this up. You'll hear her at the beginning of our chat. She was my mental health first aider trainer when I took the course last year. So, here's the stress sessions with Oxford United manager, Carl Robinson. Yeah, not too bad. Thanks so much for coming on. And um, yeah, thanks, thanks, Amber, for setting it up. No worries. No <laughs> worries. How have you been? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Really good. Really good. 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 You had a few days off the last few days, so it's, it's helped a little bit, you know what I mean? So just kicking off, just just tell me a bit about yourself, because I mean, I, I know a lot about you already. And I know, I, yeah, I, I know about all you, like, you're the youngest manager in in the UK at one point. Yeah. Or, or, or you still, you, I think you still hold that title. I think, don't you? Yeah, I think I was the youngest at the time. Yeah, um, it, it was probably something that I didn't really look too much into at the time. If that makes sense. It wasn't really. I think when anything is you, you don't understand the ramifications or or, or what other people are talking about. What you maybe you're inexperienced because I think one thing about youth, it certainly gives you a, a blinded. Uh, aspect towards fear or a poorly developed sense of fear. I remember Steve Iway saying about some talented players at Liverpool. So what makes him so good, Steve, he said he's got a poorly developed sense of fear. He said whether that's through youth or not failing yet. And I, t- I tend to find that that was the case with me very, very young. That it, was a, it, was, it wasn't it was something that I overly thought about. Um, but then the big thing for me, the, the one thing that did really make it more relevant was I think it was the when I got one of the youngest in Europe to obtain my pro license. That was that was big for me. It was it was an achievement that I really wanted to to, to achieve at a age when I was <clears throat> below thirty years of age, and it was something that 
I really aspired to try and try and get very quickly, and I was very very fortunate to get through the process and the and the coaching qualifications to obtain that. So I, I counted myself as very very lucky, being in a very good place at a very very good time, and I had amazing people that showed unbelievable faith in me. Um, whether that be Steve Iway, whether that be Paul Ince, whether that be Sam Ardice, whether that be Pete Winkleman at the time, people who respected what I did and, 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 and that gave me a platform to, to still be here today, really. Well, I mean, you're, you're only, I think you're 40 years old now, which is still really, really young for a manager and you've been doing it for bloody ages now. So it's... it's... Yeah, it's weird. I, I don't know what, I don't really understand that because um, I'm speaking to, I speak to Ryan Lowe a lot. Uh, who played for me weirdly and he's uh, he's new into management it's only his third year into management and I speak to him quite a lot and the good the bad the ugly and, and even though he's done it a lot less than me you can still learn off them sort of people as a low you're still really young so it's like the things that you're doing I didn't realise he's actually older than me oh really wow well, and I went oh that's a bit and it, so because of, because of the pathways that we, the different types of pathways that we have just to mm. still to be certainly the weeks by the beginning of the start of next season everything carries on it I would have been over 600 games which is wow incredible really and mm. to have done that for so long and to be in as vocal as what I am <laughs> and to, to upset the amount of people that have upset it's, it's <laughs> something that I'm mostly proud of yeah, you've, I mean, you've got a really good win record. You've managed some really good teams. Like your your period at MK Dons was was. I mean, I because I remember when you got appointed, and I was like, "Who's this guy getting getting this job?" And he's 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 only a bit older than me, and I was just a bit like, "How's how's, how's that happened?" And you did really well, and I just think like, "Well, like, well done, mate, for doing that and sort of stepping yeah. up." And it's yeah, it's it's it's, a, it's an admirable thing because you don't. You don't see that every day, I, I, and I think you'll be you'll be remembered for years to come just just for that and, and all of, like your successes. Since. I loved it. I loved it. I loved um, the the biggest question I get asked more than any other question is, "Will you ever go back to MK?" Um, oh, okay. It, it's the biggest question that I get asked all the time. Whether I'm just obviously I've still lived in the area for a period of time, and it's something that. The, the six and a half years as manager there and uh, I think it was two years in relation to being an assistant there you saw that you, we were you were just touching over nine years of, of a connection with one one place and my family now and even myself I think since 2007 I've lived down here other than the, the 18 months I spent away at Blackburn so you're talking it's over a decade of, I've lived in the south of England within within the Buckinghamshire sort of county mm-hmm. It's been um, it's been a place that's been very very fun to me, and, and the people of Milton Keynes have been like, wherever I go. It, it's it's weird. You still people still come and speak and talk about them times, and, and it's not so much sometimes the winning that, that means a lot to me. It's the amount of things that were good about the football club at that particular time, that the friendships that you build, the the honesty that you that you build, and the relationship and rapport that you build with the people of Milton Keynes, because I think. As a football manager, you have to identify with the people first and foremost before you can identify with the club because the, the club is just a, an extension of the local community. Um, it's almost like a, a homage to the area and somewhere where people congregate to go and support their team. So without an understanding of what they... what why so The big thing with Milton Keynes that people travelled to Milton Keynes, it wasn't their first club. It, it wasn't their primary team. 
it was almost like it was a it was a secondary thought. Well, I support Tottenham, or I support Liverpool, or I support Man United. I've come from London, where I used to have a decision to get Highbury, and and the way the games changed. Now all of a sudden, I live in a new city with a new stadium where I can go and watch the game. So Milton Keynes was always it was always going to be a growing situation where it was going to be a, a secondary generation development club. So you always knew the moments that you spent at that football club at that particular time. It's going to have massive implications over the next 20 years. And still today, that's the one infuriating thing about it since the day that left. People who go in there have got to realise it's not about today remember Milton Keynes. You know more than anyone. That it's a growing, it's, it's the fastest growing city within the United Kingdom. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's growing day in, day out from the day that I moved here where I live wasn't, wasn't around then. I went for a run the other day around Wolven Sands and you're coming from Wolven Sands back into Milton Keynes and the amount of new houses um, that from the, I think, from the north-west of the city, that that wasn't there. So we, we, it, there's so many, it was growing and you always knew it was about the three, four, five, six, seven, eight-year-olds who were born in Milton Keynes who were taken by the parents. It's not until they're fans and they start having children. So mm-hmm. I, I think it was a really important time. Um, and there's some great people there, like Lee Scriven, who who really made me understand the people, <clears throat> and, that, and that's something that why I've got a really affinity with the place because I think that's and that's why I revolt to most people. Will there be a day that you go back? It could be twenty years, could be I don't know when. I would love one day that to be the case because it's just a place that give me a chance, and it's a place that I probably still owe a big debt of gratitude to. But saying all that, one of the best things that ever happened to me was leaving uh, to grow mm-hmm. as a person to change philosophies, to change thought process, to change of environment. I think change is a good thing, so not to be scared of. So it's it's almost like a, a number of different things with MK Dons that I look back on being so young doing it. Being so young starting off means that I'll have a lot more time to go back <laughs> rather than starting really late and the time may not be right because that will always be something that will live long in the memory that I was given a chance by the people and... Um, I'll never forget winning games and going to clap the cowshed end after games and the, the way they were and the way they, they attached themselves to my players was 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 incredible. I, th- I think you'll, for, for your whole career as well, you'll get followed around by that while you go back to Milton Keynes. And mm. I, th- yeah, I think it will continue I've, to happen. I've been quite lucky everywhere I've left. Um, I think if I, if I leave Oxford today, I think that, that would still be saying people would still respect what I've done there. I think wherever I've gone, I've always, my, my record has always been better points per game than, than when I left than what it was when I first went in there. So, and, and, and again, Charlton was a choice of mine because my daughter was still incredibly young going to senior school and my wife was working and I just felt it was wrong of me to be living in, in Greenwich from Sunday night. It was meant to be Monday to Tuesday, Thursday to Saturday. It ended up being going down on a Sunday night once everyone went to bed here not coming home to after the game on the Saturday because the travelling was was almost impossible. But I left there on my own accord and, and I think we built an amazing football club. Uh, we cut the wage bill by a lot um, from a lot of the foreign players that were there on big wages to reduce that and to have an honesty about the place, bringing in Lee Bowyer to, to allow him to carry on and he, he put his own stamp on it, rightly so. And he went on and did really well at the football club. So, Everywhere I've always left, I've always tried to treat the people who work within the football club and respect the fans of the football club to let them know that I'm only the manager for a small period. We're a revolving door, football managers and football players. The constant, yeah, yeah. the constants of the is the history that will that will always be there. But so are the fans. 
you're only passing through their football club, so you've got to treat it with tremendous care and tremendous respect while you spend any amount of time there. And you mentioned kind of like the travelling and the like the staying away from home and stuff. What sort of pressures as a manager from a kind of like mental health perspective did, did you face at the time or, or still face even? Um, well, I think sometimes if you have an opinion in, in the modern world that we live in, an opinion that's heard um, through through media circuit, through social media, you don't want to upset somebody. I think the easiest way of walking through life is not having an opinion if you don't want to be criticised. Um, but equally, that can also be a, a shallow and narrow-minded approach to something because if you can ever speak and be who you want to be, you're never going to feel that you fulfil yourself. Um, and you can never be true to yourself. And I think so. It's that, it's that crossover of wanting to be who you want to be, but understanding along that journey as well, you're going to upset an awful lot of people because not everybody's going to agree with your with your processes, with it, with it, with, your, with your opinions. And I think that's been the biggest thing for me, the biggest learning curve at the beginning. And maybe try to be something that I wasn't. And, and all of a sudden, the things that you say, you, you can't really back up because because it's not who you are. I think the longer you do it, the more and more you you sacrifice. The fact that you know criticism is part and parcel of you of you being who you want to be, and you can accept that criticism. Uh, that's a bit the problem is when you have a 14, 15 year old daughter and a wife who who work with social media as a real driver behind what they try and do for their careers. <clears throat> that's the bit that I have no control over. I mean, mum and dad are what 67, 68. I could be wrong there. I could be out. I could, I could be younger than that. I'm not too sure. I keep forgetting. But they're not in tune with the, with the modern world of social media. And only we can find out how to do it because she works in school. So it's all them other things now that sort of worry me a little bit more than just the criticism that I get. I get criticism whether I say something positive, I'm an idiot or I'm soft. Um, just, just today, someone my media team sent me a story. I had to drop my goalkeeper this week, the other week, and it's proved positive within our results. And, it was a very difficult decision to, to make to, to change my goalkeeper. And the media team were telling me today the criticism that I got from me being vocal about me finding it a, a difficult decision to make um, because I liked them as a person and I respected them as a goalkeeper, most importantly. Mm-hmm. It's incredible, the, the criticism that we got for it. And you're thinking to yourself, how shallow is that? Well, I'm, I'm being honest with you. I could have said, yeah, it was dead easy. It's something that I knew was right. But it wasn't. It, it, it was the truth. It was difficult. And so they're the bits as managers you've got to... I'm not on social media. I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on Instagram. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on... I'm never contactable from, from the outside world. And that's always been a support, a good thing. I, mean, I remember, I remember sort of a very uh, proven record manager in Sam Allardyce saying to me, Carl, when, when you get in your car and you close your door, the only people who get in your car are the people that you care about. So all of the external things that when you get out your car, you know you're stepping into a very vulnerable, very uh, high pressure situation with a lot of people who have an opinion about what you're about to do, and then have a and, it's, and then they have an opinion about what you're about to do, but then afterwards they all uh, they all have the hindsight to know that what they would have done would have been right. But it's easy to do that for the game. Why did you play in? Why did you do this? So you you, you know that's going to be right. so when you close your door. After the game, the only people that get in my car are friends, family, and people who are respectful in the industry because they're the people that can lift you. They're the people that can criticise you. And if people within that car say something to me that is hard for me to accept, it will upset me. But I know they're only saying it because they care. So mm. it's a different 
type of criticism to accept if that if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, no, it does. It really does because well, and it's well when you mentioned Sam Allardyce, he's he's the guy to listen to because how much experience has he got as well? So <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot more than me. Um, it's one of them ones where I think with Sam. He's been around the block. He's he's got teams who are in a, in a very difficult position. Although the job he's just took at the moment looks almost impossible at West Brom. Um, yeah. But that's the person that he is, and people who criticise him for taking it, you think he's a bang on. How many other people would have took that opportunity with a team that is is struggling that bad? So hopefully, like I say, that he gets himself out of that trouble. And but he's a really good person to deal with. He's someone that really supports me and someone that I look back on with, with tremendous memories and, and fondness. And he's helped me an awful lot. As, as a football manager, when it's not going so well and your team's not winning the matches and you think, I mean, you must think, like, what's the point in this when you win? I mean, if you lose match after match after match, I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Um, so my example <laughs> my example was Mikel Arteta at Arsenal so he he came into that position took over a bit of a poison chalice, chalice I think at Arsenal and um, he's a he's a very inexperienced manager it's his first proper role and he must have thought what's the point in this how how do you cope with that as as a person in your position good question uh, it's almost you get blinded by by the negativity in some ways and you try to you try to stay true to your philosophy and that's really hard when you're losing games of football and you know what you're doing is right but the results fundamentally are completely wrong and you say Mikel Arteta was probably the prime example you could you could see Arsenal see there was a development aspect and they're in a really difficult situation with a change of guard not just on the pitch but off the pitch and I, and I bet you yeah, everything he was doing arguably what you do see is as a fan I still see it when I watch games now you see clubs that are struggling you can see the way the players are acting you can see the way the club is definitely going but one thing you certainly see with the Arsenal team, there wasn't any player publicly coming out and being negative about what the approach. If anything, they were coming back, back in the manager. And you'd always know when players are fighting for the manager or not, because you can tend to find that the media circuit how positive it is. I think one thing Arsenal did really well is they really, they really got the right things out, out and about into the public domain. And I think that really helped. And then fundamentally from that position on, they started winning games of football. Well, they have done the last two or three. And you can now, I think we've done won the last three, isn't it? Is that right? Yeah, last three. Yeah, yeah. Which is so amazing. It is, yeah. And that's because it's been a byproduct of how hard they've worked. But again, I think even he said, we can't tell about that belief of sticking true to what you know is right, even though things weren't going wrong, not going right. That's the most difficult place to find yourself as a manager because, like I said to you before, all the critiques have come from people with a bit more hindsight after the event. And I've never lost a game after the game so it's it's almost impossible to be judged mm. it's one of the ones that before a game when you're making these decisions it's all for the right reasons never to lose and it's just because a game is so unpredictable and the only thing you can predict in a game of football is it's going to start and end but everything in the middle of that is so unpredictable so you can't always 100% be sure what's going to come in front of you for the next 90 minutes but at least with them and every time I've been in that situation trying to stick to the basics and the basics are you try and build a back forward that doesn't concede the goalkeeper that's brave the set plays are right for and against and then you have players on the football pitch that hopefully can produce moments of magic when they come along and, and they're the very small finer details that when you're building a team you, you just have to keep going back to, to dealing with the basics <laughs> 
And I know that at your team at Oxford United, you you're you're very kind of like mental health focused, and I th- I think from from what I've seen, you you're kind of the physical fitness and the mental fitness of your players is is equally as important. And I think that when I, for instance, if you did lose a couple of matches on on the trot, your your players might take a knock mentally. Um, and I'm not. I'm, I'm, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I guess that a, not every team has that kind of support system in place. Again, it's not for me to, to say they do or they don't because sometimes things are done very, very privately within football clubs. All that, all I can speak about is what we do. Um, we have a psychotherapist rather than a psychologist. And we believe that is the right structure moving forward. Um, obviously, we have mental health first aid trainers uh, within the building. <clears throat> we have a very, very good support staff as well who understand the mental health ramifications or the mental ill health of some of our players and, and also the, the good mental health that some of our players have as well. So we have a generic understanding of that, but equally we have people in the building who are extremely qualified to deal with uh, everything else surrounding it. And do you, do you personally kind of like speak to the players about their mental health and kind of is, is there those open chats there? Yeah, you're always aware of that. You're always asking them how they are every day. <clears throat> You'd like to think of any players having problems away from the game, but they're open and honest to be able to talk about that. Um, and like I said to you earlier, I think some of our players feel more safer now than ever. Uh, we are about to move into, obviously we're now in 2021, where I can foresee people's mental health or mental ill health being a constant growth over the next 12 months because of the surroundings mm-hmm. that we live in and the negativity that we're, so, we're fulfilled with day in, day out. All you have to do is to put on the news for 30 seconds and right away it can make you feel down and sad. And it, it, it is. It's not just in football. It's, it's, it's right across the board now, across society. Because negative news sells. People want to listen to negative things. They don't want to listen to the positives of life. And mm. I think there's a big role to play within within media circus to, to really improve that. It'd be great one day to get a, a Sky Sports or a BBC news app that give me 10 positive things that somebody's done within the day that makes me feel good about my life. Um, but like I say, who will read that? Who will pick that up and read about it? So I think the big thing is moving forward in football clubs. We can be as men in football. Like I say, I can't speak for the for the female arm of our game. But the, the big difference that I do notice from the men, we, we find it incredibly hard to speak about um, something negative because words that I don't like using, but you're not a man, will get things and all the different quotes that people will throw at you if you don't have the ability to speak out and... I think one thing the industry certainly developed over recent years is people have a generic understanding that people will treat you the same regardless whether you or information or what you put out into the world, negative or not. And I think that's the big turning point. We are now starting to see young people having a bit more of a bravery or a bit more of an openness to come out and speak about things that aren't quite right. Yeah, because I, I mean, the two the two examples that I've come across since I've been doing this podcast is so I spoke to a an ex-footballer in, in the last series, a um, guy called Carlos Sabra. He used to play for Gillingham, Sheffield United mm-hmm. and a couple of other teams. And I, 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 he was like one of my childhood heroes because I was a Gillingham fan growing up. And um, when I spoke to him, he, he sort of said, oh, there was a few like discrepancies in the dressing room, but there was no, there was nobody suffering with mental ill health or, or not that he saw anyway. And then I spoke to obviously Matt Smith a couple of weeks, month ago, um, Doncaster Rovers, and he sort of said, "Yeah, that this, there's a there's a big support system. All all of the players speak about it. We're there to support each other. It's improved a lot over the last couple of years." 
Would you? How would you say it's kind of changed and improved since kind of you've been managing and playing? I, I wouldn't say it's improved or got better or worse. I just think people are more open to speak about things. Still nowhere near enough. You're talking about the ex-player that you had from probably been what the late nineties, maybe the early two thousands. It's tw- twenty years ago now. Yeah, yeah. So and I think look back, back then it was even harder for people to speak out. We're living in 2021 and we still don't have a professional football that openly come out to say that they're gay. So you can't tell me that our game's in a good enough place to mm. to speak about health because if someone doesn't still do, in in 2021 still doesn't feel comfortable to say what they're what they're all about, it, it, it's not great either. So for as much as what we can say that we've moved forward, there's still people out there suffering in silence. And and the most important thing is that people do enough talking. Make people feel as comfortable with what they need to be to be themselves. And I think, yes, there is more support mechanisms. I think sometimes the ticking box exercises that people just do just for the sake of doing it. But if the players still don't feel safe enough to come out and talk, we're still not doing enough. And I think that's the, the big driving force that a lot of us are saying within the industry that I think if you can you can have an open and honest relationship with your players and they have a, a freedom to come out and speak and tell you what they need to tell you, that's when we've cracked it. Well, not until that day that does everybody feel feel comfortable coming out and speaking. I said to you right at the beginning of the interview, we're living in a world of social media as well. So mm. the the critiques that will come out for people not feeling too well or, or with mental ill health, it will, will it will spiral into even more negativity. And, and, and I can I can speak for this. People only ever see you can have a hundred positive tweets, but they'll only ever read one negative one, and that's the mm. one that gives an application on their on their mental health. So. Hopefully the game's got better. Hopefully the game will get better. Um, and those as people who, who are of our age, hopefully we can be open and honest about our feelings and thoughts that the next generation feel just as comfortable speaking out as well. And that's the bit that we're trying to get. But equally, not use, not use something like this as an excuse either. Um, mm-hmm. Because we see the resilience within society because without resilience, people won't push themselves to be successful. So it's that it's finding that balance of being able to push somebody to a limit where they where their resilience is, is completely utterly tested, but in a very safe environment as well. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think yeah, the resilience side of it is 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 a good way to look at it because if if you're not if you don't have that resilience, you don't reach your full potential, do you? So it's a kind of double edged sword, really, sort of. Yeah, I think moving forward, I think <laughs> It is the fine line of, of me saying to somebody, "Come on, there's more in there. Come on, you need to be stronger. <clears throat> Come on, you need to you need to make sure that this doesn't affect you." But at the same time, feeling feeling that you can um, also be comfortable with who you want to be. So it's just that it's just that very fine line of of, of pushing somebody, and pushing them in a very secure and safe environment. Hmm. And I'll never apologise for, for challenging my players. <clears throat> and I, I like to think that for as hard as what I have been on my players over, over the years, um, there's never an aspect of me or an element of me to embarrass them. It's always for them, um, whether that to, whether they need a shout out, whether they need an arm around, whether that be public, whether that be internal, whether it be private, whatever it may be, there's always been a support mechanism that's surrounding my players. That's good. That's really good to hear that because, again, like, I know you won't be able to comment, but I, I'm guessing not every manager is like that. And it's, yes, yeah, it's, it's it's really lovely to hear that, personally. <laughs> oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm never going to comment on somebody else because there's better people than me out there doing the same thing. 
Um, and, and again, it's just about we're asking the questions of how I foresee it. I'm sure if you sat down with a large, a large portion of managers, they'll, they'll say exactly the same thing to you as well. So I, I do think it's changed. I do, I do think it's changed dramatically. I was even just listening to Paul Ince last night who were working for saying it when he went to the Premier League. It was a different type of dressing room than what he remembers when he was in the Premier League. Uh, okay. um, and he was saying about how it's different now. You have to treat people different now. And that's just the way the game starts to go and starts to move. And whether it's good or bad, that's not for any of us to say, but it's what it is. And people's feelings and, and thoughts have, have obviously still been the same. The difference is it's it's something that you can work on if you have a freedom to speak out. No, I mean, I mean the one that stands out for me is I, I watched the um, the Spurs documentary on Amazon a, a couple of months ago. It's, it's about halfway through lockdown. Yeah. And Mourinho is, he's probably one of the scariest manager, I'd say. But then even in that documentary, he came across as like, he had that softer side where he could kind of be approachable and support his players. All managers are, honestly, the, the humility that they carry is, is a lot different to the public perception from an external point of view. Um, there'll be managers that I know that have an ability to, to converse and to be sympathetic, to be understanding, to be um, caring, all these, all these things that you need to be just to be a good person, arguably. And but arguably, then they're also paid to win a game of football and to manage a football club. If you spoke to most CEOs at the big corporations across the world, they'll all have an edge to them. That is the reason why they're there. But it doesn't mean that they're a bad person either, just because they have an edge to them. And I think some of these documentaries that you see and you watch the all or nothing right across the board for the American football ones as well. Most of the head coaches seem to have a personality. But because of these documentaries, you now start to see people's personalities a little bit more. People only ever listen to managers or see managers on the touchline for 90 minutes desperate to win a game of football. I'm sure if you put a camera on a fan for 90 minutes, you have a completely different view of their personality <laughs> because of how they act within a 90-minute period. Managers are no different. And on top of that, people only get to see people speak through the eyes of a lens for 30 seconds of a maximum, maximum time at, at the end of a game and how it's... How it's Edited will also affect how people see you. So the documentaries, what it's done is get, it's put a little bit of a sense of humility towards people who work within the industry. And I think it's been a positive for all the managers and all the players as well, just to see that people talk about people who are overpaid. But they're also just normal people who have the same problems within their families. They still have babies, they still have people who pass away. They still have so many different aspects of their life that, that go wrong. But because people don't want to see that, because they want to put them on a pedestal, because they hit the footballers or football managers... People aren't too interested in the negative side of our lives either. I think, in a way, I think those documentaries are a kind of a positive thing because I, I don't know, I always had this perception of some footballers just don't care and some managers are just there to berate their players and sort of like try and get the best out of them, but just push them to the absolute limit. And it's a, the, the, again, the one that sounds like me, Sunderland Till I Die. I watched that a couple of years ago and I was a bit like, I bloody love that. I've I've got no affiliation with Sunderland at all, but I, I just found myself like, because the players are in such a sort of bad state and the team is in such a bad state, I was like, I was actively supporting them, even though I knew they were going to get relegated. <laughs> I was worried. I was worried about that because we played them once, and I got into a bit of a, bit of a tunnel bust up with some of their players. And I was thinking, please don't edit. <laughs> no, but it did. I think I think what that did it showed. I keep using the word humility. I think it, it does get, it does show that aspect of people's lives that. Other people don't see it. There's one with Jack Baldwin who went from Petersburg to Sunderland and you see his wife having to leave where she lived and, and find a place to live with the new with the newborn kids and stuff like that, which people don't see. 
people always think it's, it's brilliant. People didn't see Anne having to move and change all their friendship groups and all their, and their life to move down to Milton Keynes to support what, what I do for my living as well. So there's, there's other parts of our industry that people don't get to see, unfortunately. And, and one thing about this certainly has done these types of documentaries, it's certainly given people a bit more of an understanding of what we actually do. Yeah, because it, it's kind of like essentially behind the scenes footage, isn't it? And yeah, it's I, I just, I love, I, I really hope they bring one out about Arsenal at some point, because I'd love that. But one thing I wanted to talk about was was the whole kind of coronavirus thing and how, how it's it's kind of affected the, the, the role that you play as manager, but then also like how it's affected your players as well. It's a great opportunity to test ourselves as human beings, really. It, the First and Second World War, people were sat in a very similar, fearful situation. We're having to go to fight for our countries. We're just asked to sat at home and to, to ride this through and to make sure that we, we do the right things from government guidelines. And I think one thing football certainly shown, that if you know, one third of our British population or our UK population interact with, with football. So when people say, well, why are they carrying on? When you think one third of our population can, can have some sort of focus and some sort of enjoyment to look forward to when we, when we are all in isolation. And I think the game's found a different way of interacting. I think social media's been a positive for the game. I think what you certainly have seen, you've seen different sides of people, different personality traits of people, because they've had an openness to speak through the eyes of, a, of, of the phone or the computer or whatever way they do this, some of the videos that they do. I think football clubs have been so creative in helping with the local communities and also getting people to find different ways of interacting to keep people mind in, in, in a good place. So I think the game's been a tremendous support mechanism for people external to the game. <clears throat> but internal within the game, obviously, you always have that fear going into games and worrying about what you can and can't catch. I think the news this week, we're going to now get tested again twice a week, is going to be a really, really good uh, part of our game. And we just hope that now, as the next six weeks, we can stay safe and, and stay performing and, and keep people's minds in a positive in a positive light how would you say that in 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 these times i guess that the lack of fans and or, or no fans at all must have been a big big impact on the team and and you too kind of having that support around you yeah i think i think um having no fans and we we've been lucky we've had three games with people in the stadiums only 2000 people or 1000 for the test game and then 2000 2000 and difference they made to the industry. I think we truly understand how important fans are. We are, at the end of the day, we're an entertainment industry for people to come and watch. And I think we've really noticed that over recent weeks that without people watching within stadiums, it's, it becomes a totally different atmosphere, a totally different set of um, experiences that we've never, we never want to experience again. We, we do for the foreseeable future, obviously, but it's certainly something that we don't want to carry on. Uh, but no, it's, it's been different. We can say that honestly. And, the players have mentioned that as well, how, how cold and uh, soulless the stadiums really are. But it, but it is what it is, as long as we're still playing and we're still getting an opportunity to play. It hopefully can be a positive thing, at least people seeing us through the eyes of a lens. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I just find it so weird not, just when I watch football on TV, it's just so weird not having the atmosphere. I, I'm not I'm not a massive fan of the whole, like, fake crowd noise being pumped in and when you're watching it on TV I'm, I'm a bit like yeah. it's it kind of yeah it, it just, on just to just to numb what, what other people say but yeah I, I'm not I'm quite positive when it comes to these sort of things I, we can't change it um, we have to accept the circumstances that we watch football or how we watch football now and uh, people are forgetting uh, late March early mid-April 
even into early uh, May, that we had no football whatsoever. <clears throat> I think it was near 10, 11 weeks without the game that we all love. Um, and it was a much colder place. It was a much soulless place, not having football on TV or any live sport. Um, I'm sure Netflix and, and Amazon Prime were, were the only ones who were winning um, with the documentaries that they put on. But for us to now have live sports still on our TV screens is, is something that we're, that we're very, very lucky to, to have. And I've, I've, I've already mentioned this, but you've, you've been a football manager for 11 years now and you're still really young at the age of 40. What aspirations do you have for the future, both in and out of the world of football? Yeah. Out of football, stay alive, <laughs> keep, keep doing the right <laughs> things and keep enjoying what I do. Um, be a good father, be a good husband, all them things that we all, all the things that we should be judged on. Um but also have fun as well to make sure that you, you, you do you still have that element in your life that you can still get excited by doing different sports and doing everything else that goes around that. But the big thing for me within within the game is it's just to make sure that I stay true to myself as well and just to make sure that you can improve people. I think as a football manager, if you're improving people, you should fundamentally be winning games as well. If you just worry about winning games and not improving people, you tend to you talk about Mikel Arteta. It seems to be one of his biggest traits. He makes people better. He makes on and off the football field. And if you do that over a period of time, the longevity that staying in the game will, will arguably improve the results of the football club. So that's the big thing to me is to, is to keep working with young people that have a, who have an ability to want to learn, to make people feel safe within the environments that they play for us in um, and to win games of football because what people don't realise, I love football. There's, there's no there's no getting around it. We'll finish this now. Man City play Man United tonight, which is a game I've been looking forward to all day. It's going to be a game that and I'm full of energy and it's a derby and so I actually just love football my wife will tell you the last mm. four nights and here I've had a different game on every single night so just because it's my job it's also my pastime um, but I'm very very fortunate to be involved within the industry that I love as well uh, that's that's and that's, that's really great to speak because I've, I've um, so I've read Arsene Wenger's autobiography quite recently and he yeah. he's he he loved football and he he sort of said even when I was losing even if I signed the wrong player like it was on me and but I I just love football so I couldn't stop like managing sort of thing so I think yeah I think that's a big thing is if we just love the game so much even within it and people who frustrating and people say oh such as such doesn't care I've not met many people that don't care about the game that we that we associate ourselves with and just because I've worked for three or four clubs. I don't hide the fact that I still support Liverpool. I still get excited when they win. I still get depressed when they lose. I still get frustrated when chances get missed or or people get injured. Or so there's still I still go and watch them whenever I can. Um, obviously it's different over recent years, but I still try and get to games as 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 often as possible. So these are all little things that sort of I never forget the fact that I had a season ticket around field for five six years from when I was about no yeah from seven to to twelve till I started playing on a Saturday. Oh, okay. And my dad's still got the season tickets still today. So I don't forget, I've also been a football fan as well. I still am a football fan of Liverpool. And I have a go at my dad because when he has a go at, say, Rafa Benitez or Gerard Hulie or Jürgen Klopp, he goes, oh, why have you done this? Why that? I go, Dad, don't forget what I get, the stick that I get. And you know, there's different facets of the reasons why you pick teams. You can't let people know why you sometimes do it. You might have a player who might have a problem at home with his parents, his wife, his kids and you might have to come out and say you've dropped them and fans think, well, you, you don't know what you're talking about, but it's to protect the player because he wants it to stay private. So, you know, my dad gets all excited about it and he gets all negative. And, and again, 
he's the best in hindsight of picking the best Liverpool team to win a game of football. He also knows the, the difficulties that I have. And I said, so I don't, I'm still a massive, massive football fan. And whether I'm working in football, whether I'm working whatever I do, I still love football. It's still something that I've, I've grown up adoring and I'll never lose that love for the game. Even though it does challenge me sometimes, it does make me sad, it makes me angry, it makes me happy, it makes me elated, it makes me tired, it gives me energy, it gives you every physical and, and mental emotion possible. But it, when you love something so much, you're willing to accept all them things coming along with it as well. Thanks so much for coming on and yeah, good luck for the rest of the season. I hope it, Thank you. I hope your games um, don't get keep getting postponed because yeah, like, <laughs> like I said, we all we all need football and um, you guys are on a really good run. So yeah, good good luck and keep going on up the table. Cheers, mate. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Speak to you later. Take care. See you soon. Stay safe. Cheers. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. Thanks so much to Carl for coming on the podcast and all the best to his club, Oxford United, for the rest of the season. They're just outside the playoff positions at the minute in League One, so they still have a chance of being promoted. So fingers crossed. I say this every week, but I'm no mental health specialist. Everything you hear on this podcast is purely the opinions and thoughts of me and my guests. So if you are suffering from mental illness, I've included some useful links and numbers in the podcast notes. Finally, please remember to share the stress sessions with your friends, with your family and anybody else who you think might enjoy listening. And while you're at it, I'd also really appreciate you leaving me a review and giving me a rating apart from if you're on Spotify, because for some reason you can't rate or review. Thanks for listening and catch up with you again next Monday when I'll be speaking to another fantastic guest. Have a lovely week.